Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms. And this will be the next installment on my series on the origins of the First World War. And this is Part 5, Russia. And this lecture will be sponsored by the letter K. So please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description if you can help to support these lectures and keep them coming. And I've experienced a lot of great pledge growth over about the past year. I now have over 250 patrons, which is really wonderful and encouraging. It more or less allows me to make a modest living off of this podcast. However, as many of my regular listeners will know, I've often had a real problem with declines of payments through Patreon, which Patreon makes very difficult to fix or even to know about, and it has been especially severe this month. I've had the largest number yet of declines, including among them several very loyal longtime patrons. Patreon sent to creators a vague email message blaming, quote, new requirements by a processing partner partner, but regardless, please check your Patreon account if you are a patron and make sure that your payment is going through and that you are able to listen to the patron-only lectures that have been posted, such as the recent ones on Bosnia and on Myth of the Month culture. I may soon send out a message to those patrons who have been declined, but even still, those messages are often missed. They are caught by filters or they don't get through. A lot of my patrons evidently don't know or have never gotten the message that their payments have been declined and they're not getting all the materials that they should. And if you have any trouble or any doubt about whether something's gone wrong or you're having trouble fixing it, please message me on whatever app or Patreon or by email, historiansplaining at gmail. And my brother, who is a web project manager, has been very kindly helping me and patrons to work through these problems. So if you have any doubt, please reach out. But all of that aside, this lecture will be on Russia, which was a truly pivotal country in the outbreak of World War I, especially in turning what might have just been a regional war between two states into a major European war. And at the end of June 1914, the Russian imperial government received news of the assassination in Sarajevo of the Archduke and his wife. And they responded, of course, with horror at a regicide, the killing of a royal and future king. But nonetheless, they moved quickly in order to back and protect their ally, Serbia. And thus they became the first state to involve itself in the diplomatic clash between Austria-Hungary and Serbia. So an obvious question, of course, is why? What was so important about Serbia, a small landlocked state that didn't even border Russia, and that had no seaport and little political or industrial power. Well, in order to understand why Russia would risk a war and ultimately even take part in a massive conflagration for the sake of Serbia, we have to look at Russia's position in Eurasia and at the strategic and ideological interests that they had at stake in the Balkans. Now, compared to previous countries that I've discussed, Russia is very hard to examine from the perspective of today for several reasons. For one thing, unlike the Ottoman Empire or Austria-Hungary, Russia still exists, and so it is not so obscure and unfamiliar to modern-day audiences. 
Instead, it looms very large in the Western imagination as an object of fear, anger, and controversy. The perception of Russia today is summed up to some degree by a famous quote that is often attributed to Winston Churchill, according to which he said that Russia was, quote, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. So this quote is often dredged up and used to validate the perception of Russia as a strange, inscrutable, essentially alien world, and by implication essentially irrational. It's often used in documentaries and miniseries to claim that Russia somehow lies outside of Europe and even outside of civilization as such. And a similar notion has been expressed in more recent times in a phrase among pundits, which says that Russia is an authoritarian state because that is, quote, in their cultural DNA. And I love this one because it's particularly paradoxical if you consider that culture is usually taken to mean things that are learned that are not biological or inborn. So when you say that someone has a cultural DNA, there's a sort of paradox that their, their behavior, even if it's not biological, it's somehow inherent and reflective of their unchanging essential nature. So it expresses, I think, a similar sense that Russia is fundamentally despotic and repressive because it is alien, unchanging, and frozen in time, unlike states in the West that, by implication, are free, dynamic, and progressive. In this way, this understanding of Russia is basically in line with Orientalism, and especially the old idea of Oriental despotism. Okay, so... The fact is, Churchill did, in fact, say those words in a conversation about Russia, specifically in an interview that took place on British radio on October 1st, 1939. But if you look at the full quote of what he said, it is clear that his point was almost the exact opposite of what people today have taken his words to mean. So in this interview, he was, of course, discussing the war that had just broken out a month earlier when Germany had invaded Poland. And the interviewer asks Churchill what he thinks the Soviet Union will do about Hitler's move into Poland and about the resulting war. And his answer was, quote, I cannot forecast to you the action of Russia. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. But perhaps there is a key. That key is Russian national interest. It cannot be in accordance with the interest or the safety of Russia that Germany should plant itself upon the shores of the Black Sea, or that it should overrun the Balkan states and subjugate the Slavonic peoples of southeastern Europe. That would be contrary to the historic life interests of Russia. End quote. So what is Churchill actually doing here in this quote? For one thing, he is refusing to make any definite predictions about another state's actions, which is wise because there is always uncertainty about the future and also because he does not want to sound as if he's bossing around another major power whose favor and support he needs. Secondly, Churchill does argue that Russia has definite interests at stake which ought to lead them to act to stop Germany. And one could say in this way he is indirectly appealing to Russia's interests in order to encourage them to join the war against Hitler. 
Thirdly, it's important that Churchill is definitely not saying that there is anything especially strange or irrational or mysterious about Russia. But on the contrary, he specifically argues that Russia is a country with definite interests and that its actions can be understood if one views it as a rational actor pursuing these clear interests. And fourthly, and more specifically, Churchill argues that Russia has vital interests at stake in control of the Black Sea and in control of the Balkans. They have an interest vested in blocking foreign powers from controlling the South Slavic nations. And so in sum, in saying this, Churchill almost certainly had in mind when he said these things, the First World War, in which Russia had gone to war 25 years earlier in order to protect Serbia a South Slavic nation in the Balkans. And so if we credit Churchill's assessment of the situation from 1939, then we have to ask, why would the Balkans matter so much to Russia? What was at stake there, other than some sort of idealistic Slavic pride or national feeling? Why would Russia put so much stock in who controls the Balkans? Well, firstly, in order to understand these strategic interests, in addition to the ideological interests in Slavic unity or pan-Slavism, the first and most important thing that we have to do is simply look at a map. We need to consider the geography of Russia itself and its links to the other parts of the world around it. So as for the most basic facts first, the main traditional core area of Russia occupies a very large, flat region. It takes up most of the so-called East European plain, a flat zone running from the Black Sea, the Caucasus, and the Caspian Sea in the south, all the way up to the Arctic Ocean in the north, and stretching from Central Europe and the Balkans in the west eastward to the Urals, or one could say in a sense even beyond the Urals, into the flat basin of western Siberia. This large flat plain is covered by three belts of different climate and vegetation zones running east-west. Firstly, the steppe lands along the littoral of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Then north of these, a broad belt of forests, including both conifer and mixed forests. And then north of that, a small band of tundra along the subarctic. So considering the East European plain where Russia is located, the geography of this region presents two important paradoxes. On the one hand, this region is very easy to unite together under a single regime. There are no major obstacles in the way of travel and communication. There are no clear redoubts in the mountains or in any islands where breakaway or hostile statelets could take shelter. It's very easy for one power to consolidate and unite this whole region. But at the same time, it is very difficult to defend. There are no natural barriers around it protecting it. It is vulnerable to incursion or attack from all directions, or at least from the east, the west, and the south. And so if any state or regime is going to unite this whole region, it requires a very well-organized administration with a large, well-equipped land army capable of acting fast and defending against raids or invasions. Additionally, the other major paradox is that this landmass is tremendously productive, capable of producing huge surpluses of grains, including wheat and flax from the steppe lands, 
of timber, furs, honey, and beeswax from the forest lands, and of minerals, especially iron and copper, from deposits all around the whole region, but especially in the Ural Mountains. But at the same time, these tremendous surpluses of raw materials that can be produced in Russia only have value if they can be exported to markets abroad. Otherwise, they simply accumulate and languish within Russia and cannot be exchanged for other forms of wealth, including those that might be used to equip and pay a large military. And moving and exporting these raw materials from the East European plain is not inherently very easy. Transport over large expanses of land, although we think of it as being comparatively easy today, was actually much more slow and difficult in the pre-modern age, especially before railroads. Seas and rivers could serve more easily as conduits of transport. For these reasons, the points of contact between the East European plain, this main base of the civilization we call Russia, the points of contact between this plain and the other regions all around it in all directions are strategically critical, and they are necessary to keeping the country economically viable, and hence politically and militarily viable. Through most of history, especially as I mentioned before the advent of rails, the main crucial arteries of contact and transport in and out of Russia were rivers and seas. Specifically in the southeast, the Volga River, which leads down to the Caspian, and by extension to Central Asia, Persia, the Middle East, India, and China by way of the Silk Road. In the southwest, the Dnieper and Don rivers, which flow south into the Black Sea, and hence can lead to Constantinople, the Mediterranean, and the rest of Southern Europe. In the northwest, a system of rivers and lakes, including the Neva and Volkhov rivers, which lead into the Baltic Sea, and hence to Northern Europe. In the far north, the White Sea, which is an arm of the Arctic Ocean, which can be used to launch ships to sail around Norway and to Britain, but only at times of year when the ice packs are melted. And lastly, in the east, beyond the Urals, the belt of steppes and mountain passes and valleys that lead through Siberia, which are comparatively difficult to traverse, but can be followed all the way to the Pacific Ocean and hence to East Asia. So hence, the major mission of the Russian state from the 1500s onward has generally been to open up as many of these passageways as possible and to keep them open. This is the way that the Russian state seeks to bring wealth into the country, increasing tax and tariff revenue in order to support the state and its armies. If too many of these export routes are closed off for too long, then state revenue inevitably drops, the country is impoverished, peasants and townspeople are likely to revolt, and soldiers are liable to mutiny or desert, leaving the country open to foreign attack. At least, this is the accepted view that has been internalized by many Russian leaders. Many of the major cities of the old Russian Empire from the years before the revolution were founded specifically as ports and naval towns in order to secure these various sea passages, including Arkhangelsk on the White Sea in the far north, founded in 1584 as one of the last acts of the Tsar Ivan the Terrible, Volgograd, also in the Soviet period called Stalingrad, on the Volga, 
founded in 1589, after the Russians had seized control of the Volga from the Khanate of Astrakhan. St. Petersburg on the Baltic in the northwest, which served for centuries as the capital of Russia, and which was founded by Peter the Great in 1703. Odessa on the Black Sea, founded in 1794 as one of the last acts of Catherine the Great. And Vladivostok, founded as a Russian naval base on the Pacific in 1860, and which became a major port after the Trans-Siberian Railroad was completed in 1905. So in sum, by 1914, the Russian state had just barely succeeded in securing its important sea links to the outside world, which could then be exploited and protected with the help of a railroad network. One could say that by that year, Russia ought to have been feeling very secure and confident. But this was not really the case, for several reasons. For one thing, these gains had been won slowly over the course of centuries, at an enormous cost in terms of blood and treasure. It had required repeated wars over several hundred years against Central Asian Khanates, kingdoms, and raiders in the east, who repeatedly attacked, sacked, and destroyed towns and took thousands of slaves into the slave trade. And then after 1500, against the Ottoman Turks and Persia to the south, and in the west against European powers on the Baltic, including Sweden, Lithuania, and Poland. Secondly, after 1800, the Russian state, despite its enormous size and power, including a new naval power, had become fearful of the rising industrial strength and dynamism of the West, including France and Germany. Russia had been invaded by France under Napoleon in 1812, and although they defeated the French because they were unprepared for the Russian winter, Nonetheless, the French armies caused enormous devastation and losses. They occupied Moscow, during which time more than half of the city burned down, torched by either French troops or Russian civilians or both. By the end of the 19th century, furthermore, Germany had arisen to become an even greater military and industrial state than France, and it was located even closer to the Russian border. Hence, the Russian state felt the need for constant vigilance against possible German aggression or advantage. They had to protect their ports and sea lanes on the Black Sea and the Baltic, and they tried to keep up in the industrial and technological race so as not to be overtaken in military power. For this reason, Russia had entered into a defensive alliance with France in 1891, and then later brought in Britain as well as part of the so-called Triple Entente in 1907. And this triple agreement had the effect of creating a defensive ring around Germany, hopefully containing it. Okay, now, nonetheless, with all of that being said, why would they care about the Balkans? The Balkans, as of 1914, had very little to do with Germany. Russia's involvement in the Balkans was a contest with Austria-Hungary, a much less powerful state, over dominance in a fairly isolated and poor region. So why would this have mattered to them? Well, to understand this, we have to further consider the history and identity of Russia, which gave it an ideological link to Serbia, and also we must consider the specific political events, especially from the Crimean War onward, that gave Russia vested strategic interests in the Balkans, even beyond the Black Sea, and particularly in Serbia. So I'm going to discuss some of the history of Russia from its early roots in the Middle Ages up to 1914. This is obviously a very long, complex, multi-layered history, too complex and eventful to recount in one lecture. It was defined by many conflicts and ruptures, often driven by towering personalities and their far-reaching ambitions. 
Russia was not at all frozen in time. So I can't explore this history in full, but I will try to give some main points and broad ideas in order to understand how Russian leaders saw their aims and responsibilities in the early years of the 20th century. Okay, so Russian history, of course, begins in prehistory, when this Eastern European plain was apparently occupied early on by a group of tribes called Sumerians. These were then quickly displaced by a new invading group called the Scythians, who had superior horsemanship and iron weapons. The Scythians, a few hundred years later, were then displaced by a succession of new invading tribes and groups, the Goths, then the Huns, then the Avars. By about the 500s or so, when the area was largely under Avar domination, there also were new groups of migrants coming in to the region from both directions, east and west. So starting around the 500s or so, significant numbers of Slavic tribes migrated in from the west, from their old homeland around what's now Ukraine and Poland. And in the east, Turco-Mongolic tribes from Central Asia. By about the 600s, one particular confederation of Turco-Mongolic quasi-nomadic tribes called the Khazars created a strong consolidated kingdom which lasted for several hundred years. It was centered mainly on the Volga, with a capital at Atil, on an island in the Volga. And this kingdom prospered largely from managing east-west trade. Atil became a major entrepot, multi-ethnic and multi-religious. And it seems that much of the upper classes of Khazaria converted to Judaism in the 800s. Now, around the same time that Khazaria was flourishing, a new rival to Khazaria arose just to the west. And this was a confederation of mostly Slavic tribes and small towns and city-states whose leaders called themselves the Rus, and who traced at least some of their ancestry back to Norse Viking chieftains. So the exact origins of the Rus and the confederation that they created are unclear. They seem to have begun initially from small fortified trading posts and colonies founded by Norse Vikings and traders, which then grew gradually into towns with mostly Slavic populations. So it started off as a sort of blended Norse and Slavic society. And some of these early towns were in the northwest corner of what's now Russia, including Staraya Ladoga on Lake Ladoga, which may have been the first, and which then was followed and overtaken by a larger town at Novgorod. According to the Russian Primary Chronicle, which is one of the earliest written sources surviving about Russia, but which was written several hundred years later. According to this chronicle, the Rus formally began in 862, because the elites around the town of Novgorod were disunited and society was in disorder. So they invited a Norse leader named Rurik to come down and take up rulership as king and to mediate disputes according to law. Rurik reportedly brought with him his brothers, who then took up rulership in other towns around the region. In the 860s and 70s, the Rus expanded, especially to the south, down along the rivers and trade routes leading towards the Black Sea. And again, according to the primary chronicle, Rurik's successor named Oleg seized control of the towns of Smolensk and then Kiev. And Kiev was a major town located on the Dnieper River, basically at the southern edge of the belt of forested land. And hence it was well positioned as a point of control for the steppes to the south. 
Oleg made Kiev his new capital of the Rus in 879, and hence this confederation that he dominated with this so-called title of Grand Prince has come to be called the Kievan Rus. The society, it seems, was mostly Slavic and pagan. It stretched from the boreal forests near the Baltic and White Seas down to the steppe lands, almost all the way to the Black Sea. It seems to have been an agglomeration of small city-states, each with its own local ruler called a prince, but ultimately owing fealty to a supreme leader called Grand Prince with his seat at Kiev. These different towns or principalities had very different forms of government. Some were very authoritarian, ruled autocratically by the prince, and some were very different, with local quasi-democratic self-rule through town gatherings and councils called the Vece. And in these towns, the prince was really just a nominal caretaker with little power. The biggest example of this was Novgorod, which was ruled by an oligarchical mercantile class through the Vece. So these different towns had very different local customs, but they were united by trading relationships, by a shared language, which seems to have been a form of East Slavic language with Norse influence, and which was the ancestor of modern-day Russian, Ukrainian, and Belarusian. They also were tied together by dynastic ties. All of the grand princes of Rus for the next 700 years came from the same family line, descended by one branch or another from Rurik, and hence they've been called the Rurikids. Some principalities had their own local rulers from local families, but the most important ones, including Novgorod and Smolensk, were ruled by brothers and sons of the grand prince. So this system helped to keep some degree of unity throughout this vast confederation, but could lead to a lot of instability. Some sons and brothers didn't want to wait to succeed to the throne at Kiev and would leap ahead in line. Others would want to stay in the town where they were located and set down roots there. And so there were many periods of feuding and instability. Additionally, the Rus needed allies and trading partners in order to survive. And they turned most of all to the Byzantine Empire on the far shores of the Black Sea. Beginning in 911, the Grand Princes, starting with Oleg, made a series of trade treaties with the Byzantines, and they sometimes even had members of the Rurikid family intermarry with the Byzantine imperial family, showing that they were becoming a diplomatically significant state. Over the 900s, they expanded in different directions. Various new towns were founded or grew to new importance, such as Ryazan, Yaroslavl, and Vladimir. In the 960s, the Rus attacked and defeated the Khazars, and in 969, they destroyed the capital at Atil. The remains of Khazaria were then colonized and absorbed by the Rus. Around the same time, the process of conversion to Christianity was beginning, which was completed around the turn of the millennium. So around the year 950, the queen regent of Rus named Olga traveled to Constantinople and took baptism there, apparently largely as a diplomatic move, cementing their alliance with the Byzantines. And then two generations later, around 1000, Olga's grandson Vladimir I adopted Christianity as the state religion and suppressed paganism. Shortly after, there was a period of flourishing, mainly in the mid and late 1000s, which saw the foundation of new institutions such as monasteries, including the very prestigious Monastery of the Caves near Kiev, which became a center of learning. Cathedrals were built in the Grand Byzantine style with local Slavic touches. The biggest ones were in Kiev and Novgorod, and both were called Santa Sophia, like the Great Basilica in Constantinople. 
and they established diplomatic ties and even intermarried with royal families all around Europe. But in the late 1100s and early 1200s, there was a period of decline, with increasing internal feuding and even violence between different states and their princes, and the Rus became more and more an easy target for raiding. The first Mongol attacks on the Rus took place in the 1220s. There was a series of devastating raids, but then they stopped for a time after the Mongol ruler Genghis Khan died and the forces withdrew back to Mongolia. But then the Mongols returned again in the late 1230s, and this time they did not stop their wave of attacks. A series of Russian cities in the south were destroyed, including most of the city of Kiev. The northern cities in the more forested lands were harder to attack and were able to hold out for some time, but then capitulated. Novgorod was allowed to keep some degree of autonomy as long as they submitted and paid tribute to the Mongols. And shortly on the heels of this Mongol conquest, with the relative weakness of the Russian cities and their armies, other countries to the west took advantage opportunistically, principally Sweden. Sweden took this moment to attack, but the northern Russians were able to rally and resist them. They rallied mainly behind the leader Alexander, the prince of Novgorod, who led them in battle and defeated the Swedes on the Neva River in 1240. And hence, Alexander was given the honorary title of Alexander Nevsky, and he became the first national military hero, in a sense. Just two years later, the Teutonic Knights, a German crusading order that controlled much of the Baltic countries, also attacked, and Alexander Nevsky and his supporters defeated them as well on a frozen lake in the so-called Battle of the Ice in 1242. And these victories under Nevsky enabled the Russians to keep some sense of dignity and collective identity, even as they were then ruled by a Mongol parastate for about 200 years. So for the, about the next two centuries, Russia was ruled by a Mongol army called the Golden Horde, which really translates more to royal encampment, since gold or yellow was the royal color, and horde was a word for... It comes from the word ordu, meaning the sort of military encampment of the ruler. And the Golden Horde generally ranged over the steppe lands in the south and set up a capital on the Volga called Sarai. And while they left the northern areas generally alone, they still did demand regular tribute and submission. The Russian principalities and statelets were allowed some degree of self-government as long as they continued to pay this tribute. The Horde controlled foreign affairs and foreign trade, and they hand-picked and appointed the Grand Princes of Rus, usually based on which prince was the most cooperative with them and who bribed them the most. In the 1360s, in the midst of this period, Lithuania, a Catholic Baltic kingdom to the west, invaded Rus and defeated the Golden Horde in battle. And hence, they were able to take over the whole southwestern part of the Rus, including Kiev. Many years later, after this, Lithuania and Poland confederated together into the state of Poland-Lithuania, and these two kingdoms split up the western portion of Rus between them. So this occupation by Lithuania and then Poland led to a gradual divergence, where the western areas came to be more influenced by the European states and hence by Catholicism and other western customs, although Kiev became a main center of orthodox resistance to attempts to convert them to Catholicism, 
while meanwhile the eastern areas that continued to be under the control of the Golden Horde were relatively more isolated from the rest of Europe. And so partly for this reason, the Russians gradually split into three distinct regional subgroups. Firstly, the Great Russians in the larger eastern zone that we now know as Russia, but at this time came to be called Great Russia. Secondly, Little Russians in the western and southwestern zone that was under Polish control and which is now known as Ukraine. And White Russians in the northwestern area controlled by Lithuania. And this region is basically now what we know as Belarus, which originally means the White Rus. So these three areas would be politically divided for several hundred years, but still maintained some basic sense of connection or commonality. The eastern area, or Great Russia, would become independent first and would rise to become a new major power. But in order for this to happen, one city-state had to rise to primacy and consolidate power to a great enough degree to lead resistance against the Golden Horde, and in effect take the place of Kiev, which had previously been the main power center, but which was now under Polish control. So you can think of the condition of the Rus under Golden Horde rule as sort of similar to the situation of other countries that have been divided among many small city-states, like, say, classical Greece, or the Maurya city-states of India, where these different states that have some degree of shared language or customs and that maintain their independence, nonetheless are in a sort of unstable situation, where it's inevitable that at some point one of these states will find an advantage over its neighbors, press that advantage, gain more power, more territory, and then, you know, leading into a vicious cycle where this one predominant state is then able to overwhelm all the others. So this is what tends to happen when you have a country that is politically fragmented, but geographically united, as Great Russia was. So as it turned out, the city-state that achieved this was not Novgorod, or Smolensk, or Vladimir, or any of these long-established prestigious cities of Rus. But quite unexpectedly, it was Moscow, which had been a comparatively minor backwater, but which would rise to create a new confederation, more centralized than the Kiev and Rus had been, which they called Muscovy. So this started with the small statelet, which was called the Grand Duchy of Moscow, which may sound grandiose, of course, but actually was very minor. So early on, its ruler didn't even have the title of prince, was, but was lower ranking even than that. But Moscow had certain significant advantages. It was located in the forested region of north-central Russia on a small tributary of the Volga. So this was not a major strategic site, but it was centrally located with some connections to the Volga Basin, at the same time that it was fairly defensible, less exposed to attack from the steppes to the south or from the Baltic to the west. And the Grand Dukes of Moscow, moreover, could claim descent from the Rurikids, and specifically through the line of Alexander Nevsky, which then gave them some degree of prestige and even plausibility as leaders of Russia. So Moscow led the gradual consolidation of an independent kingdom, and in order to create a strong independent kingdom, they had to overwhelm and defeat three alternate power bases that stood in their way. Firstly, of course, the various independent duchies and principalities around them, which they started to consolidate first through marriage alliances and then through military force. 
And one by one, they annexed and absorbed the various states around them into the sort of growing organism of Muscovy. The major holdout, not surprisingly, was Novgorod, which resisted Moscow's control, but eventually was overwhelmed, defeated, and annexed in 1478. And the Prince of Moscow, Ivan III, annexed the city and then confiscated the bell, which had been used to call together the meetings of the Veche, and which had served as their sort of symbol of collective self-governance. So the confiscation of this bell can be seen as the sort of symbolic end to this tradition of local quasi-democratic self-rule as Moscow more and more became the dominant and monarchical power around Russia. Secondly, they had to confront the Golden Horde. So Muscovy gradually extended its power until they were able to start defying the Golden Horde. In 1380, there was a series of famines and raids from the West, which made it almost impossible for the rulers of Moscow to collect taxes and hence pay the tribute that was required of them by the Golden Horde. So the prince Dmitri of Moscow simply refused to pay the tribute. The Mongols attacked, but Dmitri was able to defeat them at the Battle of Kulikovo. Exactly 100 years later, in 1480, the leaders of Moscow issued a formal declaration of independence, and the Golden Horde was forced to respond by mobilizing their armies to try to confront Moscow. And this led to a long standoff with the two armies on either side of the Ugra River. And the Golden Horde realized that they could not defeat the forces of Moscow, and so they withdrew. And thus, while they did not formally accept this declaration of independence, nonetheless, they were effectively neutered and then retreated and fragmented into just small kingdoms and statelets along the Volga. Thirdly, the last really major power base that the rulers of Moscow had to confront was the boyars, which is the general term for the regional nobles and aristocratic landowners around Russia. These boyars had huge power and wealth. They often had their own private armies, and they often had bases of power at great distances from Moscow, which allowed them to then defy the grand princes in the capital. And they could even potentially make alliances and common cause with foreign powers. So the grand princes had to deal with these boyars very carefully, and they started gradually trying to bring them to heel, step by step, and eventually defanged them. So at the same time, while Moscow was gradually rising to primacy and establishing this new independent Russian kingdom, there was something of a cultural and artistic flourishing, which is seen especially in the rise of icon art. This was an art form that Russian artists had first learned during the Kievan Rus period from the Byzantines, and in Muscovy it was further adapted to Slavic tastes and elevated to really the Russian national art form, especially by great masters, most of all Andrei Rublev in the late 1300s and early 1400s. Now by this time, by the early 1400s, you could say that Muscovy had more or less emerged onto the world stage as basically a new as a new late medieval kingdom. But actually, they didn't stop there. They took on instead the pretensions of an empire. And this was largely because of the decline and fall of the Byzantine Empire, which had been their main sort of contact, ally, and conduit to the world of European civilization and Christendom. So in the early 1400s, the Byzantine capital at Constantinople was struggling to hold out against the Turks, which were slowly encircling them. 
the rulers of the Byzantine Empire made pleas to the Western states for help. And under extreme duress, they made agreements with these Western states to reform their church and bring it more in line with Catholicism, and hence even to pave the way for an eventual reunion of the Catholic and Orthodox churches, basically on Catholic terms. So Muscovy was horrified and rejected this. They saw the Byzantine Empire as essentially compromised, and they came to see themselves as the conservators of true Christian orthodoxy. They set up their own independent Orthodox Patriarchate at Moscow in 1448, and a few years later, after the fall of Constantinople, the Russians began to refer to themselves as the Third Rome. So in this sense, they claimed to be inheriting the right to lead the Christian world. So after the first Rome had fallen because supposedly because of heresy, and then Constantinople had fallen because of their weakness against the infidels, then the new legitimate Rome now was Moscow. And this new confidence and ambition was shown by a series of reformist rulers. These included Ivan III, who came to the throne in 1462, and sometimes informally referred to himself by the title Tsar, which is the Slavic form of Caesar or Emperor, and probably was inspired to take up this pretense by the rulers of Bulgaria and Serbia, who also had used this title of Tsar. Ivan III's accomplishments included in the military realm, founding the rudiments of a regular standing army under royal control, new civic institutions, including an independent court system, and he's known for certain grand building projects. He brought in Italian builders to build the Kremlin, the main fortress and seat of government in Moscow starting in 1485, and he also built grand cathedrals, including the Cathedral of the Assumption and Cathedral of the Dormition, which combined local Russian styles with Italian Renaissance styles. Ivan III after he died in 1505, was succeeded by his son, Vasily, who continued his reform policies. Vasily later died when his successor, the young Prince Ivan, was only three years old. And hence there was a period of power struggle. So the real consolidation of power was far from complete. And the various boyar potentates around Russia openly fought for control of territory, for control of the capital, and even of the throne. And meanwhile, the young Prince Ivan witnessed a great deal of this violence, some of it even directly in person, and apparently was scarred by it, and he despised the boyar princes and potentates for the rest of his life. Nonetheless, he took up the throne as Ivan IV and took up rulership as a teenager in the year 1547. He was the first ruler to be formally proclaimed as Tsar, and it seems that his reign can be distinguished into two different periods a first period that was fairly productive and orderly, and then a second one that was chaotic and tyrannical. And hence he came to be known as Ivan the Terrible, although his moniker really could more properly be translated as Ivan the Dreaded. So in the early period, Ivan had military successes, including the defeat of the Khanates of Astrakhan and Kazan in the east along the Volga, thus basically finally securing Russia's eastern flank, he undertook further monumental building, including most famously St. Basil's Cathedral, in a sort of exuberant and fantastical new Russian style that was built to commemorate his victory over Astrakhan, but has come to be sort of the main visual symbol of Moscow and even of Russia. 
He undertook new civic reforms and created new administrative institutions. And maybe most remarkably, he convened a general council called the Zemsky Sobor, which was an occasional representative gathering, rather like a parliament, with representatives of the nobles, the church, the free commoners, and possibly even some peasants. This was a very impressive gathering, but it was mostly symbolic. It was not allowed free debate and could not set any legislative agenda of its own. It functioned mainly as a rubber stamp and as a way for Ivan to try to cultivate greater support and curry favor among the different segments of the populace. But nonetheless, the Zemsky Sobor did sometimes step in in crises and mediate and could determine the succession. Finally, Ivan, it seems, had a very happy first marriage with his wife Anastasia Romanovna an aristocratic lady from the powerful Romanov family. And they had a very close and loving marriage, but she died in 1560. And it seems that this loss somehow triggered or encouraged Ivan's gradual slide into madness and paranoia, leading to his later period of tyrannical and often violent rule. In 1565, he created a special royal district called the Oprichnina, which was ruled by direct royal fiat, enforced by secret police, enforcers called Oprichniki. He started killing dozens of boyars in Moscow for supposed plotting and treason. In 1570, Ivan accused the church in the city of Novgorod of colluding with the enemy to the west, Poland-Lithuania. And for this reason, he seized and plundered the churches and monasteries all around the country, massacred hundreds or maybe over a thousand boyar nobles, and massacred and destroyed most of Novgorod. So these actions, although they were brutal and destructive, they could be seen as having a rational basis in that the Tsar was destroying alternate bases of power that could challenge him. But nonetheless, he became even more erratic and violent in his personal life as well. And at one point, he killed his own eldest son, Ivan, apparently due to a fight that started because the Tsar thought that the prince's wife was too immodestly dressed. And so the Tsar bludgeoned him to death. A few years later, Ivan the Terrible died in 1584. The country was depleted financially and militarily, and the boyars were furious and eager to try to retake their independence back from the crown. Ivan was succeeded by his youngest son, Fyodor, who ruled for 14 years, although it seems he was not especially intelligent or involved. The real power behind the throne was the chief minister, Boris Godunov. And in 1598, Fyodor died with no son. He did have a younger brother named Dmitri, but evidently nobody wanted Dmitri to become Tsar. So instead, the council, the Zemsky Sobor, convened and chose as the new Tsar the advisor and brother-in-law Boris Godunov, who then took up the throne. The young prince Dmitri, meanwhile, was exiled to a country estate where he later died under suspicious circumstances, possibly murdered. So Boris Godunov on the throne apparently governed fairly well and competently. He had a lot of experience. But other boyar aristocrats were jealous and angry at being passed over for power. Boris died in 1605, and he was briefly succeeded by his young son, who was then quickly murdered. And after that, the country quickly plunged into a period of chaos that's been called the Time of Troubles. And it started with small wars and power struggles among local princes and boyars, some of them trying to seize the throne. 
and then foreign states, including Sweden, Lithuania, and steppe nomads from the east, all started to take advantage, raiding the country and occupying large areas. In Poland, a young Russian man showed up at the royal court and gained admittance, and he claimed to be Dmitri, the youngest son of Ivan IV, who supposedly had never really died. And so Poland made an agreement with him, gave him backing, invaded Russia, captured Moscow, and put this supposed Dmitri on the throne in return for promises that Dmitri would help to convert Russia to Catholicism. So this so-called false Dmitri ruled for 11 months, but then was killed by a mob, and his body was burned and the ashes were fired from a cannon towards Poland. He was then replaced by two more imposters, each of them also claiming to be the dead Dmitri, and both of them were overthrown. So by this time, various councils and cabals were meeting all over the country and proclaiming new tsars all over the place. The whole nation really was in chaos. There was a great deal of violence. Until in 1612, a butcher and a local prince from eastern Russia were able to rally a volunteer militia, which then moved westward and was able to expel the Poles from Moscow. Soon after, the Zemsky Sobor met to choose a new tsar, and they elected Mikhail Romanov, the scion of the powerful Romanov family, which happened to be the family of Ivan IV's first wife, Anastasia. So the Romanov dynasty then went on to rule for the next 300 years, and they had to reconsolidate and try to restabilize the country after this period of total chaos. And they took a lesson from this so-called time of troubles. They saw it as a repetition of the 1200s, when infighting and instability among the Kievan Rus had allowed for the Mongol invasion. And the main lesson you could say that they took was that disunity within Russia leads to foreign attack. So over the course of the 1600s, various long-reigning Romanov rulers, including Mikhail and Alexei, mainly wanted to ensure stability, avoid any new succession crisis. They introduced a new standard law code and reformed and re-centralized the church. These reforms generally went well, except for the reform of the church liturgy, which they tried to do to bring it more in line with contemporary Greek practice. So some of the country accepted this change, but also some churchmen and commoners rejected these reforms, leading to a schism, with the traditionalists forming a separate underground community called the Old Believers. So by the end of the 1600s, the country had fairly effectively reconsolidated and stabilized, but it had fallen behind the Western European nations in all kinds of ways, in terms of administrative practices, technology, literacy. And so a series of Romanov rulers in the 1700s tried to, in their sense, remake Russia, reform it and update it, taking ideas and inspiration from the West. This was jump-started most of all by Peter, who of course we know as Peter the Great, a young, driven, and ambitious ruler who was fascinated by the West and by the new sciences, and who was determined to remake Russia into a major modern power. He seized power while still a teenager from the regent, his elder sister Sophia, in 1696, and he learned from foreign merchants and technicians living in the German quarter of Moscow, And then after seizing power, he went on a grand tour of Europe to study science, technology, and administrative systems in the West and bring them back to Russia. So Peter's regime successfully increased industrial production, 
with a huge expansion of mines, metal workshops and forges, especially for ironworking. Russia soon overtook Sweden as the biggest iron producer in Europe. He instituted aggressive military reforms with appointments and promotions based on merit rather than social rank. And he started a massive naval buildup, which created Russia's fleet, soon equaling the British Navy. Early on in his reign, Russia was invaded by Sweden, but thanks to these rapid changes, they were able to stop and defeat the Swedes at the Battle of Poltava. And perhaps most famously, Peter founded St. Petersburg to serve as a new modern capital of the country, directly on the Baltic, with direct communication to the West. And he founded the first university in Russia at St. Petersburg in 1724. So Peter's reforms and new lines of policy were basically continued by most of his successors through the 1700s. Four out of the five rulers that followed Peter happened to be women. One of them was the Empress Elizabeth, who ruled in the mid-1700s and who established the University of Moscow and built the massive Baroque Winter Palace at St. Petersburg. But of course, the most famous and the most impactful of these female rulers was Catherine the Great who seized the throne from her husband in a coup in 1762. And when on the throne, she sponsored the creation of all sorts of new civic and cultural institutions, such as the Bolshoi Theater, new schools, including the Academy of Fine Arts and the first school for girls, and created a national scientific institute and appointed a female friend as its director. So in many ways, Catherine the Great not only adopted new ideas and practices from the West, but even in some ways leapt ahead of them. But she turned more conservative and even repressive in her later years in the 1790s in reaction to the French Revolution, which cast doubt as to whether these westernizing reforms might actually weaken or even destabilize the state. And she died in 1794, and her successor, her son Paul III, was much more conservative, and he joined the European coalition of states against revolutionary France. So you could say in some ways Russia had gone full circle from being comparatively isolated and perceived as backwards to being at the forefront of innovation and new systems of power to then becoming conservative. But all the while, as all of these changes and transformations were happening, there were two important processes happening at the same time year by year over the course of centuries. These were firstly the outward expansion of Russia in all directions, and secondly, the creation of serfdom. So as for the expansion, Russia expanded eastward, beginning in 1581, when the powerful Stroganov family hired a team of Cossacks, or sort of Eurasian cavalry shock troops, to venture east of the Urals and to look for new lands to seize and resources to exploit in Asia. And they first encountered and conquered a small khanate called Siberia, and hence they began to use this name, Siberia, for the whole expanse of Asia east of the Urals. And this began a long process of Russian exploration and conquest of this whole vast expanse of territory. They moved extremely quickly and actually reached the Pacific in 1638 and started setting up outposts and colonies on the Pacific coast. In 1741, they crossed over into Alaska and sent venturers and church missionaries to create small colonies there, which they would hold until they sold Alaska to the U.S. in 1867. But they did still retain Siberia, which became a major source especially of mineral resources. 
In the 1800s, they also began slowly to colonize southward down the Pacific coast into East Asia and extorted territories from China, eventually founding Vladivostok in 1860. At the same time, they expanded to the west, beginning in the 1600s. In the 1650s, they were able to gain control of most of Ukraine. Ukraine had been under Polish rule, and the Poles used Cossacks, a sort of Eurasian cavalry-fighting caste of unclear origins and ancestry. They'd been using the Cossacks as basically enforcers, maintaining Polish control over Ukraine. These Cossacks then rebelled against Poland in the 1640s and 50s, and Russia intervened and took advantage, making an alliance with the Cossacks. For a time, the Cossacks tried to create their own independent state, but it quickly fell apart, and the Russians moved into the power vacuum and took over control of all of eastern Ukraine up to and including Kiev, which could be seen as a sort of triumphal regaining of the old capital of Rus. Over the course of the 1700s, they gained more territories at the expense of Poland and the Baltic countries. After the Peter the Great defeated Sweden, he took control of Estonia and some of Latvia. By the 1770s, the Polish kingdom was decrepit and unstable, and so Russia under Catherine the Great made various bargains with Prussia and Austria, by which they carved up Poland among themselves in a series of so-called partitions, and Russia gained eastern Poland and most of Lithuania. This led to Russia gaining rulership over the first large number of Jewish subjects. They had never previously allowed Jews to settle and practice their religion in Russia. And so Catherine's regime established the so-called Pale of Jewish Settlement, where Jews were not allowed to live in Moscow or St. Petersburg, except by special permission, and they mostly lived in shtetls or ghettos around the western end of the empire. In the early 1800s, Russia also was able to take control of Finland in 1812, and then in the Congress of Vienna after the Napoleonic Wars, they took most of Poland. Meanwhile, to the south, they expanded down onto the Black Sea shores in the early 1700s. Peter the Great was first able to take Azov, Russia's first port town on the Black Sea, then in the 1770s, Tsar Catherine the Great defeated the Crimean Khanate and the, their Ottoman allies and seized the peninsula of the Crimea and most of the north shore of the Black Sea. Later in the 1820s, Russia would gradually take over the Caucasus region, including Chechnya, Dagestan, and Azerbaijan, and they had to defeat first the local tribespeople who resisted Russian rule and then the Persian Empire south of the Caucasus. And they made further gains also on the Black Sea coasts at the expense of the Ottomans in 1829. Finally, in Central Asia, between the 1860s and 1880s, Russia gradually seized and fortified the steppe lands from Kazakhstan gradually down to Turkmenistan and all the way to the borders of Persia and British Afghanistan. And they engaged in a prolonged Cold War with the British, which was called the Great Game. And this expansion into the Caucasus and Central Asia led to the acquisition of many new Muslim subjects, and in many ways they treated them similarly to Jews, basically restricting their settlement and activities. And in all of these regions, but especially in Europe, Russia pursued a policy of so-called Russification, trying to assimilate their different subjects to the Russian language and the Russian Orthodox Church. And this was often enforced against vehement local resistance, especially in Poland, where there were several rebellions. 
Okay, so alongside this gradual expansion of the Russian Empire, there also was the development of what we call serfdom. And this grew out basically out of a political bargain, a sort of devil's bargain, where the state needed to centralize power. And they had to persuade these boyars and princes who had caused so much division and chaos to give up their political independence and to agree to serve the state obediently, especially in war. And in return, the state allowed these boyars more and more complete control over the peasants on their lands. So this, you could say, was sort of the bargain, and this is how some Russian commentators described it, that in order to create a tyrannical autocracy with the Tsar ruling over the upper class, the upper classes had to become tyrannical autocrats with absolute power over their peasants. So serfdom first started to take shape early on. So in the 1500s, peasants had generally been understood to owe rent in the form of goods or labor to their landlords, but they were still understood as free subjects, able to move to different lands, to hold properties, to build on their holdings, to marry freely, etc. But this started to change under Ivan III, who first limited the times when peasants were able to move to only a certain limited time of the year after the harvest. And then Ivan the Terrible went further and declared an entire forbidden year when no peasants were allowed to leave their landlord's estates. And this was done just for reasons of state. It was a way to grease the wheels to make it possible for boyars to mobilize and join the military forces which they were reluctant to do so if they were afraid that their peasants were going to abandon, leave, or take over the estate, or who knows what. Then under the early Romanov rulers in the 1600s, even more tight restrictions were enacted. The peasants were subjected to the justice of their noble lords. They couldn't appeal to any other courts, so in effect, they were no longer protected by law. They lost personal freedoms, could not engage in contracts or marry freely without their lord's permission. And these restrictions were a major trigger then for the Stepan Razin uprising in the early 1670s, which was an enormous revolt of peasants, also of towns and cities, which was led by a Cossack rebel commander named Stepan Razin. It began in the lower Volga, spread up the river valley, and then through the whole southern portion of Russia in 1670-71. to 71. It came shockingly close to bringing down the Russian state, but it was defeated. Stepan Razin was captured and executed, but he became a lasting folk hero. A few decades later, under Peter the Great, the peasants were reduced really to true serfdom, where they were unable to leave the lands of their lords at all and effectively became like slaves. This might seem bad enough, but then in the later 1700s, there was even further entrenchment. For instance, the Empress Elizabeth in the mid-1700s actually granted noble lords the power to exile their serfs to Siberia. Catherine the Great early on proposed and floated among her advisors the idea of emancipating the serfs, but was warned that this would almost certainly lead to complete breakdown and civil war. And so she changed course and actually made serfdom even more severe in order to mollify the nobles that were unhappy about her other reforms. And this helped to lead then to the Pugachev Uprising, another massive uprising in the 1770s, led by another renegade Cossack 
who claimed to be Catherine's deposed husband, Peter. This uprising took several fortresses in the city of Kazan before it was defeated. And ultimately, this creation of extreme repressive practices of serfdom led to a deep, widening split between, on the one hand, the Russian elites, who were increasingly wealthy, cultured, and westernized, adopting language and customs from the rest of Europe, especially France, and on the other hand, the serfs, who were overwhelmingly illiterate, extremely poor, and highly traditionalist, preserving and passing on Slavic folklore, folk art, and folk religion. So by the end of Catherine's reign in the 1790s, some Russians had come to see serfdom, which was so violent, so repressive, as an embarrassment to the country, a sign of their backwardness and even barbarity. And the Russian traveler and writer Alexander Rajeshchev went to Western Europe and when he came back to Russia, began to openly condemn serfdom and called it, quote, the grim monster, savage, gigantic, hundred-mouthed and bellowing. And this sort of point of view, the idea that serfdom was an anachronism, a national embarrassment, a national shame, gradually gained more adherence over the course of the 1800s. And by the mid-1800s, even a major government official referred to serfdom as, quote, the question of questions, the evil of evils, the first of all our misfortunes. So in some ways, this sort of lingering question and tension over serfdom formed sort of the background for the 19th century. And over the course of the 1800s, different Russian leaders sort of vacillated and even dithered back and forth between a sort of modest, cautious reformism and total repressive reaction. So Paul, Catherine's successor, ruled from 1796 to 1801. And like many rulers in that era, he was basically single-mindedly obsessed with military affairs. He instituted new systems of discipline and military order, some of which really upset the major noble families who believed that this, this new system of discipline insulted their dignity. And Paul was killed in a coup in 1801. He was succeeded by Alexander I, who ruled from 1801 to 1825, who was in some ways somewhat liberal and reform-minded, like Catherine before him. He toyed with the idea of instituting a constitution, which would involve power sharing in the government, but he eventually gave this idea up. And instead, he mainly tinkered with weakening the privileges of nobles vis-a-vis -vis the free commoners, giving non-nobles the right to do things like attend university or attain military offices. But he still left serfdom firmly in place. And his reign was disrupted by the cataclysmic Napoleonic Wars. So early on, Alexander tried to help the Germans in Central Europe to contain and stop the rise of Napoleon especially from 1805 to 1807, but this effort failed with a series of defeats. So he met in person with Napoleon at the town of Tilsit in Prussia and made peace with him. But in 1812, Napoleon broke this agreement and openly invaded Russia, leading to a devastating war in the Russian heartland. The Russians were defeated by the French at the Battle of Borodino, and the French, as I mentioned before, occupied Moscow, resulting in much of the city being burned down. But nonetheless, the Russian state survived and held out until Napoleon 
ran out of supplies and was forced to retreat and withdraw out of Russia. And ultimately, the Russian state actually gained control of Finland and most of Poland, which they then used as buffers against any possible future attack from the West. And what is more, the Russian state retrenched, and Alexander joined a so-called Holy Alliance together with Austria and Prussia with the aim of suppressing any further revolutions in Europe. So a major lesson that they took from these wars was that Russia was both powerful and vulnerable at once, and that an effective army could make the entire difference between total catastrophe and triumph. Meanwhile, political discontent continued to grow, especially as these sort of rumors and promises of possible reforms kept getting squelched. And many people, including many military officers, wanted to see more reform and liberalization, and they were tired of seeing their hopes raised and then disappointed. And some circles began planning a possible coup to force reforms on the government. In 1825, the Tsar Alexander died, and for a long time there was no successor proclaimed. And there was fear that the Tsar's younger son, Nicholas, might be plotting to seize the throne, and he was known to be a reactionary. And so some circles of radicals felt forced to seize this moment and tried to stage a revolution in December 1825. So they came to be called the Decemberists. And these revolutionary officers were defeated, the leaders were killed or exiled to Siberia, and this began then a long tradition of sending dissidents and political prisoners to Siberia. And like the Napoleonic invasions, the December Revolution arguably served as another warning shot to the regime that disloyal elements within the state might bring the monarchy down at any point. So Nicholas I did come to the throne and ruled from 1825 to 55, and he was an outright reactionary. He rejected any moves towards political reform or liberalization, and he propounded the doctrine of the three pillars of the state, namely orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality. So the legitimacy of the state rested on the fact that it was the protector of the orthodox faith, that authority flowed from the absolute power of the monarch, and that it rested on the natural unity of the Russian people, who were a Slavic people. The state took tight control over the universities, including appointments and the curriculum, and tried to inculcate this reactionary ideology. And Nicholas helped the Austrians to suppress the Hungarian revolt in Austria-Hungary in 1848 and hence took up an open position as sort of the guarantor of monarchical order. But nonetheless, there was still some economic innovation and progress in Russia. So while you could say politics were forcibly frozen in place, there nonetheless was economic and technological change. The first railway was created, which linked St. Petersburg to Moscow in 1851. And the rail system would become more and more critical because of the vast distances that the Russian military would have to cover and that goods and people would have to be moved in, t in order to support the economy. So rails were clearly critical to Russia's stability and viability, but they would grow very slowly in the mid-1800s. Now, Nicholas's reign ended ultimately with the Crimean War, a war that started in 1853 because the Ottomans tried to stop Russian encroachment along the Black Sea. 
And the war initially went well for Russia. They were able to knock out an Ottoman fleet. But then the Ottomans, the French, and the British all landed forces in the Crimea directly in Russian territory. And they inflicted serious defeats on the Russians, mainly due to logistics. Russia was unable to move enough troops and supplies quickly enough to the Crimea in order to defend it. They lost control of the city of Sevastopol in a siege. And moreover, the British and the French were able to blockade the Russian capital on the Baltic at St. Petersburg. And Tsar Nicholas died in the midst of the war, basically a broken and humiliated man. Ultimately, Russia was forced to give up some territory on the Black Sea, and also all of their naval bases and fleets on the Black Sea. Now, this was not a complete catastrophic loss, but it had major implications and ramifications. It showed that Russia had fallen severely behind in terms of technology, that it could not effectively protect and hold its far-flung territories or protect its vital sea outlets without serious improvements in rails and transport. So basically, for the remainder of the history of the Russian Empire, the major imperatives would be to catch up with the West in terms of technology and transport, and to better secure Russia's naval footholds. So Nicholas I, after he died, he was succeeded by Alexander II, who ruled from 1855 to 81. And his reign saw the beginning of a period of rapid industrialization. He also was a moderate reformist, like the previous Alexander. He showed some desire to break with the past and to rejoin the modern world. There was some liberalization of the press and of universities, and he enacted a series of so-called great reforms, mainly aimed at giving greater freedom to the common people. And these culminated most significantly, of course, in 1861, when he proclaimed the abolition of serfdom. So this ended all duties of rent and labor to their landlords. It allowed free movement, the pursuit of new occupations, and it transferred about one-third of the agricultural land from the noble lords to the peasant communes, these sort of long-standing communal organizations that had managed land use and labor and tax collection among the serfs. So the proclamation did transfer this land to the control of the communes, but it charged fees to the communes to pay for these land grants. So it wasn't really just a transfer, it was actually in a forced sale at fairly high prices. And this put the peasant communes and the peasants themselves into very deep debt, which most of them were completely unable to repay. The abolition of serfdom was followed up by the creation of more local and regional councils, which were called zemstva, which would manage certain services like schools and social welfare. And these councils were largely dominated by the local elites, but they did give peasants some small voice in public affairs for the first time. And most of the members tended to be liberal reformists. But the councils were still fairly ineffectual, especially in times of crisis, and they were able to do very little. For example, in the disease epidemics that swept through Russia in the 1890s. And they did not do enough to quell peasant discontent among these deeply indebted and still very poor peasants. And there were more occasional waves of peasant riots and attacks on landlords, such as a wave in southern Russia in 1902. 
these zemstva or councils also left out the growing industrial working class. So industrial towns like Rostov and ports like Odessa and Baku grew very rapidly, partly fueled by this influx of impoverished peasants streaming in from the countryside. So there was continuing political frustration and discontent among the peasantry, among the urban workers, and among the so-called intelligentsia, which altogether led to a broad crisis of legitimacy. So by about the 1870s, there was a great deal of anxiety and disillusionment with the Russian state and social system, which allowed for the growth of radicalism, especially among these new urban classes educated in state schools for jobs in civil service and administration. So the state bureaucracy grew with the modernizing and industrializing reforms under Alexander. And in this way, the state, you could say, created its own gravediggers. Right? Unlike, as Marx would say, it was not necessarily among the industrial proletariat, but among this new class that was called the intelligentsia. And this word actually comes into English from Russian, from this time of foment in 19th century Russia. So out of this early dissident movement that had coalesced in opposition to serfdom, now new and more radical factions emerged. And with political repression and censorship, a lot of the talent and ambition among the educated classes in Russia was pushed over into the worlds of art and literature. So Russia saw an enormous literary flowering and also into this radical political underground. So many important Russian writers, both political and literary, were arrested and imprisoned, exiled to Siberia, or in some cases forcibly put under medical supervision and declared insane. The early radicals in the mid-1800s were largely westernizing. They wanted to see liberal reforms such as freedom of speech and of religion and free enterprise, and the abolition of serfdom and of noble privileges. But the reformists who actually traveled abroad and who spent time in the West then had second thoughts, and many of them became disillusioned by the poverty, the immiseration that they saw abroad in the West, the powerlessness and suffering of the working classes. And so some of them then became radical socialists and called for an egalitarian society and a communal society. But then these socialists further split, split between those who believed that capitalism had to come to Russia first before they could then achieve socialism. And this was the common belief among many Western socialists that society had to evolve first into a capitalist stage before it could then progress to socialism. And then on the other hand, other socialists who wanted to skip past capitalism entirely, go directly from the sort of backwards, ancient, feudal type peasant society of Russia directly to socialism. And these Russian radical socialists looked inwards to traditional Russian institutions where they believed they could find foundations for an egalitarian socialist life within the traditional world of Russia. And they pointed to the old town Veche councils in towns like Novgorod and to the general council, the Zemsky Sobor, in the 1500s, but most of all, they pointed to peasant communes, these small local councils that had managed the divisions of land and tax collection, basically on behalf of the state. 
And these radicals came to be called Slavophiles, in contradiction to the Westernizers. And they believed that they could leapfrog right from agrarian feudalism to socialism and avoid the sort of corrosive stage of capitalism, which they feared would corrupt and break down the sort of traditional social fabric and bedrock of Russia. And this point of view was early given voice by a writer named Chernyshevsky in 1863, who wrote a novel called What is to be Done, which was not a very good novel, but it was very politically impactful. And it advocated that a revolutionary vanguard should educate the peasant masses and build revolutionary socialist collectives directly out of the peasant communes. And this book and its adherents helped to fuel the creation of a radical revolutionary network called Narodniks. So in the 1870s, with this crisis only escalating, the state knew that they had to turn to new sources of legitimacy to shore up their authority and to shore up confidence in the existing social system as more and more of this sort of educated middle class was drawn away into various flavors of radicalism. So one of the main ways that the state tried to address this crisis of legitimacy was by appealing to Russian national identity and pride, which was especially important now with the declining confidence in the Tsar and the church. So if you think of those three pillars, orthodoxy, autocracy, nationality, With orthodoxy and autocracy losing popularity in their hold, at least on the sort of middle-class imagination, nationality became more and more crucial. And there were two ways of, of achieving this, of appealing to this sort of national pride. One was glorification of the Russian nation through the arts, such as music, opera, and ballet, which often celebrated Russian history and drew upon great Russian literature, especially the works of the poet Pushkin. And secondly, was through foreign military adventures and interventions, especially supporting Slavic peoples in the Balkans, who were newly emerging from Ottoman rule. And these interventions could dramatize Russia's role as the leader and protector of Slavs. And sympathy with the Slavs in the Balkans captured the imagination of many Russians, and this came to the fore in 1876, when there were marches and protests in Russia demanding intervention in the Balkans in support of Bulgaria to protect the Bulgarians against massacres and atrocities being carried out by Turkish militias. And this movement was unusual in that it united together westernizers who emphasized democracy and the rights of man and Slavophiles who wanted to protect fellow Slavs, and to protect the Eastern Orthodox faith. And it happens that Leo Tolstoy, one of the great Russian writers, he was by this time an ecumenical pacifist and was very skeptical of this whole Slavophile movement. And he wrote Anna Karenina in the 1870s in the midst of this controversy, partly as a rejection of this Slavophile movement. And he has the character Levin, who's sort of the good saintly farmer, you know, based upon Tolstoy himself. He has Levin reject these calls to help the so-called brother Slavs in the Balkans. And at the end of the novel, you may, if if you've read it, you may know of the ultimate fate of Count Vronsky, the sort of young, hot-blooded fool of the novel. His ultimate fate is that he volunteers and goes off to war to support Serbia in the Balkans. 
But he does this, the reader can see that he does this not out of heroic idealism or duty, but because he is broken and humiliated. And his volunteering to go off on this escapade in the Balkans is a sort of act of self-destruction. And perhaps for Tolstoy, this might have been a metaphor for the Russian state, which by this time was lacking in purpose or direction, was seen as sort of hollow, left over from the past, and which was seeking redemption through a war in the Balkans. And it happens that the publication of Anna Karenina led his sort of fellow admirer, but also rival, Dostoevsky, to respond And he published a series of articles criticizing Tolstoy and criticizing this novel for failing to see that the Slavs under Russian leadership were destined to make a critical contribution to European civilization, restoring a pure Christian spirit to the modern world. So in this way, Dostoevsky, by the end of his career, was very much a Slavophile, although he had his own sophisticated philosophy and theology he really took up the Slavophile banner. While Tolstoy, meanwhile, on the other side, was not a Slavophile nor a Westernizer, but had become this sort of transcendental, mystic, primitivist, and rejected all modern life across the board. So what ultimately happened, of course, in this war? So the crisis in Bulgaria led to the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-78, to in which Russia was able to achieve a partial victory. They gained very little territory, but they did secure international recognition of the full independence of Serbia and Romania. And the main benefit of this victory then was ideological. It helped to cultivate Russia's role and image as a protector of the Eastern Orthodox world and the Slavic world. But nonetheless, this did not work for all audiences. An internal political crisis did continue on after that war. Radicalism continued to grow. And in fact, the costs and burdens of the war in some ways even worsened the situation. And so in the winter of 1877 and 78, a network of Narodniks fanned out into the countryside, trying to incite the peasants and spur on a general revolt. But the peasants mainly looked at these sort of urban, literate, young radicals, looked at them askance, and sometimes turned them into the authorities. And so the Narodnik plot was crushed like the Decemberists, and the leaders were killed or exiled to Siberia. So the Tsar Alexander II, who had been a reformist, after this crisis, he entertained the idea of making some concessions and even made initial move towards introducing a constitution, but again canceled the idea. And so radicalism only continued to spread and fester. And in 1881, the Tsar was assassinated by an anarchist group called the People's Will. And this triggered a wave of panic through the country, of arrests and mass executions of supposed radicals, and also of popular pogroms against the Jews, who were conveniently pointed to as scapegoats. So the next Tsar, Alexander III, came to the throne and ruled from 1881 to 94. And Alexander III believed that these small moves towards reform had unleashed chaos and terror in the country. He cracked down even further on underground revolutionary groups, largely using infiltration by secret police and spies. He also doubled down on the importance of Russian national identity and began expelling Jews and other minorities out of the empire. 
Nonetheless, the crisis of legitimacy continued and in some ways got worse with waves of famine and then typhus and cholera epidemics in the early 1890s. So this was the rather grim state of affairs when Alexander died in 1894 and Nicholas II came to the throne. So Nicholas II, again, was largely reactionary, although maybe not as adamant as Alexander III had been. He was seen basically as foolish, lacking in either imagination or common sense. He tried to maintain the status quo in domestic affairs, but didn't pay very much attention to them. Once again, he only really cared about commanding the military, and he wasn't even very good at that. So under his rule, the state began to recover from the crises of famine and epidemics by the late 1890s. And by around 1800, the state made aggressive efforts to further modernize. And the finance minister, Vita, who was considered very capable, built a modern finance system, brought in foreign investment, especially from France, rapidly built up new heavy industries, and built more rails, including the Trans-Siberian Railroad which when it was completed was over five and a half thousand miles long and is still today the longest railroad in the world. So these efforts were seemingly, seemingly successful, but radicalism did continue to smolder, especially radicals tried to capitalize on the growth in the urban industrial working class and the frequent discontent, walkouts, and strikes in the industrial cities. There was a new infiltration of Marxism, which was a socialist philosophy, especially emphasizing the revolutionary role of industrial workers. And this gave rise to the Social Democratic Party, a Marxist party founded first in Minsk in 1898. And this soon split into the Bolshevik and Menshevik factions. And it was followed up a few years later in 1902 by the new Social Revolutionary Party, which tried to blend some Marxist ideas with older Slavophile beliefs emphasizing the importance of agrarian life and the peasantry. So as this was happening, Russian high art and literature also largely turned away from celebration of Russian history and the Russian folk and towards modernism and formal experimentation, especially in theater. Moscow became another center of the artistic avant-garde, arguably rivaling Vienna, and the Moscow Art Theater put on plays by Chekhov and by Gorky, who was a leftist radical who depicted the lives of the poor urban workers. So by the early 1900s, the strength of the Russian state and the stability of society were very much in question, and they ended up being put to the test in 1904 with the Russo-Japanese War. So in the early 1900s, Russia was trying to use its bases on the Pacific in order to extend their power and territory into China. They were trying to corner the market in China from their manufactured goods, and they built a naval base at Port Arthur in northeastern China. And they came directly into competition with Japan, especially over control of Manchuria, the northeastern province of China. In February 1904, Japan attacked the Russian naval fleet at Port Arthur, and they defeated the Russian troops in a major battle on land in Manchuria. Russia responded with all of the naval forces that they could muster. They mobilized men, weapons, and supplies and tried to send them along the Trans-Siberian Railway, but this was slow and difficult, especially along this one single-line railroad, which became a chaotic bottleneck. 
Meanwhile, Russia's main Baltic fleet was dispatched to sail all the way around Africa and Asia to the Pacific, and in the spring of 1905, it reached the Pacific, where it was immediately completely destroyed by the Japanese. So this was a major national humiliation. The country had lost to a new upstart Asian state, and once again they had lost largely due to logistics, as in the Crimean War. It illustrated that Russia, while it had enormous territory, population, and resources, could not necessarily hold on to that territory, nor protect its strategic interests. Moreover, the war brought to a head discontent among several sectors of society, including the intelligentsia, who felt that the defeat showed how obsolete and ineffectual the Russian state was, and the need for more reform, also the urban workers, who were low-paid and during the war faced food shortages and high prices, and the soldiers and sailors who were pushed to the brink by dangerous conditions, bad food, ill-treatment, and low morale. So in January 1905, a revolutionary crisis began. Many previously moderate and liberal Zemstvos were quickly radicalized and began to join forces with discontented urban workers. On January 22nd, a large march of urban workers, led by a reformist priest in St. Petersburg, marched to the Winter Palace to present the Tsar with a petition. And this makes sense when you consider there was no public open forum for public debate. And so all these people could do was just (laughs) write up their requests and walk towards the palace. So they tried to present the petition for an eight-hour workday, a legal right to unionize and strike, a national assembly to draft a constitution, and freedom of speech and religion. But royal troops guarding the palace opened fire on them, massacring the marchers. And this came to be known as Bloody Sunday. Quickly on the heels of this, a mutiny broke out on the battleship Potemkin on the Black Sea, where the sailors refused to eat rotten food. And when the officers tried to force them, they rose up and killed the officers and seized control of the ship. And this fed into a further wake of strikes, marches, and mutinies that spread through the major cities all around Russia. So this was a severe emergency for the Russian state, where it seemed as if the state and society might completely collapse. And so the Tsar agreed to a partial resolution. Under extreme duress, Nicholas issued the so-called October Manifesto, which offered to institute a constitution with basic reforms like an elected parliament or Duma and basic civil rights like freedom of speech. And this deal split the opposition. It satisfied many liberal reformists, but it did nothing to address material conditions for striking workers or soldiers and sailors, and it ended up quelling the revolutionary movement, at least for the time being, but leaving the more radical underground forces still at work. So a lesson that the state again took from the 1905 revolution was that the outposts of the Russian Empire cannot be left undefended or exposed. Otherwise, the combination of the strains of war and the humiliation of defeat could lead to another revolution, possibly bringing down the state. So over the next nine years, there was continuing internal controversy and political conflict in Russia, which at least to some degree could be channeled into the orderly mechanisms of the Duma. So this was the parliament created under the new constitution. And the name Duma is simply an old Russian word for a council or gathering. So the Duma had very skewed representation, mostly elected by the elite and the intelligentsia, but it still allowed for some small voice for the peasantry and workers. 
And the government kept fiddling with the franchise, adding in and taking in different restrictions on the vote in order to try to shape the political complexion of the Duma. And they had some limited success. It was dominated early on by liberals and moderate conservatives, but with some significant number of socialists and other radicals as well. And the Duma had no power to enact legislation on its own, at least if it did pass bills, the Tsar could veto them and dissolve the Duma at will, which he did frequently. And the Duma many times called for military and agrarian reforms, and they supported a new reformist prime minister that the Tsar agreed to appoint, named Stolypin. And Stolypin oversaw the breakup of the rural communes into smaller plots owned by individual peasant families, who in theory then would have more motivation to improve the land and increase productivity if they could reap the rewards for themselves. And this new policy was called, quote, a wager on the strong. And the reforms under Stolypin inspired some degree of optimism, but he was assassinated while attending the opera at Kiev in 1911. So after the death of Stolypin, the royal family was now increasingly unmoored and adrift, and especially clueless as to how to deal with the Duma or with domestic policy. And so they came more and more under the influence of a charismatic preacher and healer called Rasputin. And they'd been introduced to Rasputin in 1908 because he supposedly could help to treat the prince, the young prince's hemophilia. And Rasputin, especially after 1911, started to fill the vacuum left by Stolypin in terms of advising the Tsar and managing the cabinet. But rumors and horror stories started to spread from St. Petersburg out through the country. And in 1913, the Speaker of the Duma openly denounced Rasputin and the power that he held over the royal family. And so the Tsar quietly asked Rasputin to leave St. Petersburg and go back home to Siberia. But his wife, the Tsarina, was outraged and tried to convince the Tsar to abolish the Duma. So this mounting crisis in 1911, 12, and 13 represents a whole new loss of trust in government and an escalation in the crisis of legitimacy. And so you could say for these reasons there was a growing need for a distraction and for some sort of governmental success to restore confidence and morale. And with the Duma and the politicians increasingly setting the agenda on domestic policy, the emperor and the cabinet focused instead on foreign affairs. And so, one could argue, they had to look for some successful foreign venture to retake the initiative. And naturally, this desire combined with the long-time need of the regime to justify itself with appeal to Slavic pride and a sense of Russian destiny as the leader of Slavdom. So pan-Slavism was never officially endorsed and espoused by the Russian state, but it did have significant supporters among the middle class, including among the civil service and the diplomatic corps, and it had a great deal of influence that way. The sponsorship of these new Slavic states in the Balkans was very politically convenient, especially at this point, Serbia, which had a shared Slavic heritage, unlike Romania, and a shared Orthodox faith, unlike other peoples in the Ottoman Empire, like the Armenians. At the same time, the Balkans were strategically important. The Crimean War had shown the danger and difficulty for Russia of holding control of the Black Sea coast, and hence the danger of losing the critical sea lanes from Russia to the west, 
which could always be closed off by whoever was in control of Constantinople, and hence in control of the Bosporus. So these new independent Balkan states offered a possible solution, a way of forging a faster and more direct link from Russia to the West. And specifically, Russia hoped to be able to build a railroad through the Balkans, all the way through Romania and Serbia, eventually to a seaport on the Adriatic, which would provide them with a direct link to the Mediterranean, completely bypassing the Black Sea and the Constantinople Straits. The main obstacle to this ambition was Austria-Hungary, which saw Russia as a menace and wanted to block them out of taking control of the Balkans. So in the 1890s, Russia and Austria-Hungary had managed to tamp down their tensions, and they worked out a series of accords where the two states agreed to leave the status quo in the Balkans and avoid going to war. But in the fall of 1908, this system was upset when Austria-Hungary violated these accords by openly annexing Bosnia. So the Russian foreign minister Izvolsky was dismayed, mainly because the Russians were worried that Austria might block them from building this dreamed-of railroad through the Balkans to the Adriatic. So Izvolsky proposed a generous deal to the Austrians. The details of this deal are uncertain, but more or less it seems that Izvolsky offered to let Austria have Bosnia so long as Austria would support Russia's plan to build the railway through the Balkans. And this deal worked out splendidly for the two governments, because what the Russian state cared about most was their access to the Mediterranean. But the Serbs were furious. The Serbs felt that they had been robbed of Bosnia, which should naturally be part of Serbia, in their view. And they felt that the Russians, moreover, had sold out their fellow Slavs in Bosnia, who were living under foreign oppression. So Russia used many diplomatic inducements and assurances to try to persuade the Serbs to back down and make nice with Austria-Hungary. And in 1909, the Serbians did agree to be good neighbors with Austria. But nonetheless, the effect of this conflict was that confidence in Russia among the South Slavs in the Balkans reached a low point, with the Serbs especially feeling that the Russians were unreliable or even insincere allies. And so the Serbian-Russian alliance was fragile, and if it broke, Russia might lose any chance that it had to extend their influence in the Balkans or to build the railroad and seaport that they wanted. So the Russians, as a result, felt that they wouldn't get any more second chances. And after 1909, they felt that they had to back up Serbia and defend their sovereignty and national dignity, no matter what, or else possibly see their diplomatic foothold in the Balkans crumble. So this was the basic state of affairs when in 1912, Russia brokered and sponsored an alliance between Serbia and Bulgaria, forming the first Balkan League to try to stop any further Habsburg advance into the Balkans. And when Serbia later emerged victorious from the two Balkan wars in 1912 and 1913, the Russians saw that their support had paid off. But nonetheless, at the end of those wars, Austria-Hungary still moved in to block Serbia from gaining any territory directly on the sea. And they demanded that Serbia remove their troops from what then became Albania. So once again, the Serbs were convinced to back down. But again, this underscored Russia's sense that they had to back up Serbia in future and protect them against any further aggression or humiliation from Austria-Hungary. 
And this was the Russian state's firm position when, in late June 1914, they learned of the assassination of the Archduke and his wife in Sarajevo. And shortly after this, they also received the accusations that the Serbian state had plotted this double murder. And so Russia's behavior and decisions in the July crisis reflect how much they had at stake in defending their own honor and their vital interests and place in the world in what would have otherwise been a minor and obscure squabble between Austria and Serbia. So this hopefully can account then, or at least contextualize, how it came that Russia was a major player in what came to be known as the July Crisis, and in exploding that crisis into a major international war. But of course, they were not alone. On the Austrian side, a state that played in some ways a similar and parallel role was Germany. And that hopefully will be the next in the series on the origins of the First World War. So thank you so much for listening. Again, if you can support and help keep these lectures coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. And this lecture was brought to you by the letter K. So I will thank my patrons, Karen Duncan, Karen Perry, Karen Plaschutznig, Kate Gilby, Kathy, Katie Willits, Kelly Lockman, Ken, Ken Muller, Kirill Trapeznikov, Kirsten Lamb, Kristaline Faith, Kuba Wizomirski, Kweku, Kyle Kaspers, and Kyle McKibben. Thank you.